Everybody. Welcome to the Vista. It's wonderful to see you here today. Hey, I haven't seen you in a while. Good to see you back. My name is Austin. If we haven't met before, I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors, and we are so glad that you joined us. Uh, before, we, before we jump in, I wanted to give you a quick uh, COVID update. I know it's been so long, you just want to hear people talk about COVID more, so I don't want to disappoint you. Um, as most of you probably heard, uh, Governor Abbott recently lifted the state mandates on mask and capacity guidelines in churches, or sorry, uh, just for the state, and so we wanted to kind of let you know what that might mean for us here at the Vista. So three things. Uh, first off, we wanted to just pause and celebrate because for the past seven months, we have been hosting one of the, if not the, largest indoor gatherings in our city and yet have not had a single COVID outbreak for seven months. Yeah, it's really great. I don't get any credit for that. There are a lot of people who have worked there. You know what's off to allow that to happen. And so don't take it for granted. A lot of people here have worked really, really hard, not just staffers, volunteers walking around, you know, vaping this room with all sorts of, I don't even know what at this point, making sure that it's clean and safe. And so it's something to celebrate, not take for granted. Second, uh, churches in Texas actually have not been mandated to wear masks or do capacity things for quite some time. So, in other words, we've been wearing masks and practicing social distancing, not because, you know, some politician told us to, but because we thought it was the right and responsible thing to do. And so, in that sense, this lifting of restrictions, it doesn't actually affect us because we were not under the restrictions to begin with. Uh, Third, and this is very important. Uh, I know this is hard to remember because if you turn on the news, all you ever hear is what? It's all bad. Everything's bad and getting worse. That's every news story in the history of the world right now. But all that said, y'all, things are actually going really, really well right now. And the vaccines are really, really working. And so we are very optimistic that we will be back to something like normal, hopefully by the summer. And so in between now and then, especially over this next week, our elders are getting together. We're talking with local health authorities, trying to figure out what it might look like for us to lift some of our safety measures at some point here in the very near future. We will kind of unveil that plan for you here, hopefully next week. To that end, we got a survey that would be very, very helpful for us for you to take. Right? We've got people all over the map when it comes to this thing. And so we're trying to just gauge people's comfort level on different COVID measures. So if you could take the survey, it should be in an email that you'll probably get when you leave this service. Only take 30 seconds to do, and it'll be really, really helpful for us. All right. So I guess so you don't get to burn the mask yet. We'll do the public mask burning later, hopefully very, very soon. Sorry to disappoint. Uh, okay, so today we are deep into our 15-week-long journey through the story of Jesus as told in the Gospel of Luke. And we come to one of my, uh, one of my favorite texts in all the Bible. All right. So Jesus, he's on this road trip to Jerusalem. At every single pit stop, He keeps getting himself into trouble, especially with the Jewish religious authorities, right? You might have noted this. So in our story for today, Jesus once again finds himself in trouble, which should perhaps serve as a reminder that trouble is something that Christians are supposed to get in from time to time. Did you know that? All the teenagers are just ears perked up. You have my attention, Pastor. Tell me more about this. So Luke 15, Jesus getting into trouble, as he often did once again with the Jewish religious leaders. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. It'll be up here on the screen for you if you would like to read along. Luke 15, verses 1 through 10. 
Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to him. But the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and he eats with them. So Jesus told him this parable. He said, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, man, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Now I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. Now, in the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Luke 15, verses 1 through 10. So the first two verses in our story kind of set the scene for us, and they tell us that all the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus. Now we know who the tax collectors were, right? They they were Jews who were viewed by their fellow Jews as traitors, sellouts, because they were collecting taxes for the evil Roman Empire, then lining their pockets by overtaxing their own people, right? So very despised people. And then the sinners, this was a technical term, for people who were, according to the Pharisees, living in violation of the law of Moses, and as such they had been excluded from the life of the community, which was the central uh, of the Jewish community, right? They could not participate in it. All that to say, the tax collectors and sinners were people who had been excluded from the life of the community because they were, according to the Pharisees, behaving in ways that demanded their exclusion. So that's who they were. And what Luke then tells us next is that all of them were drawing near to Jesus. And y'all, you just got to pause here. Isn't that so good? All the sinners were drawing near to Jesus. Not one of them, not some of them, not even a lot of them. No, Luke says that all the sinners were drawing near to Jesus, which brings us to such a simple but beautiful observation. Sinners love to be around Jesus. Can I get an amen? Are you awake this morning? Sinners love to be around Jesus. And why do you think that was? Why do you think that sinners love to be around Jesus? Now, don't hurt yourself thinking about this, right? This is not rocket science. Sinners love to be around Jesus because Jesus loved to be around sinners. Amen? Jesus loved to be around sinners. I mean, I don't know about you, but I love to be around people who love me. Anybody else? I love people who love Austin, like my parents. They were not perfect, just as I am not a perfect parent. But, man, my parents showed me unconditional love from the moment I was born. And so I love to be around my parents. Like, I would never do this, but just if for some reason I were to, I don't know, murder somebody in cold blood for absolutely no reason. You know what my mom would go? Austin is so brave. I'm sure there was a reason for this, right? My mom, she got my back no matter what. We love to be around people who love us. But conversely, we do not like to be around people who do not like us. Anybody else? It wouldn't matter what you could do for me. It wouldn't matter what you could offer me. If I can tell that you don't like me, then I would rather endure another snowpocalypse, Texas blizzard, freezing to death and nothing but my underpants than I would hang out with you in your warm house. I would take my chances with the blizzard, man. There's no way I would hang out with you. All that to say, if sinners 
love to be around Jesus, then it's because Jesus loved to be around sinners because Jesus Christ loved sinners. But do you know who does not love that Jesus and the, fair, that Jesus and the sinners love to be around each other, right? Yeah, the Pharisees. Because in verse 2, we're told that when they see all the sinners, again, not some of them, not a few of them, all the sinners drawing near to Jesus, they begin to grumble to themselves. And this word grumble, it's meant to remind you of another place in the Bible. Anybody remember? The grumbling. The Exodus, right? The Hebrew people, they're liberated from slavery, and then they just complain about God the whole time. So God, he delivers the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt. It's this unbelievable thing. But then they immediately just start inventing new things to complain about. And doesn't that sound like the most human thing you've ever heard? You know, God delivers you from bondage. God, please deliver me. I'll do anything. God delivers you. And the next day you're like, I don't like my car very much. I asked for a Land Rover, Lord. Can't drive this Camry around here. Well... So they complain. They complain about the water. They complain about the food. They complain about Moses' leadership. Finally, Moses has had enough. So he pulls this real power move on him. Exodus 15, verse 8. He says, hey, the Lord hears your grumblings, which you grumble against him. Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. Parents, this is great to use on your kids when they don't want to eat the veggies. Listen, little man, your grumblings are not against me. They're against the Lord. So eat the broccoli, right? And so what Luke tells us that the Pharisees are grumblers he is telling us that they are, um, they are heirs to the long legacy of religious entitlement that has long existed among God's people. Because entitlement is the mark of a grumbler. Entitlement is the mark of a grumbler. Because grumblers think that they are entitled to be in control. And because they think they're entitled to control, they think they are entitled to be, you know, like the theology and the morality police. Have you ever met any of these people? They walk around with their little homemade hall monitor badges, handing out theology and morality citations to everybody. And that's what they do to Jesus. They walk up to Jesus and they write him up with this citation that says, and I quote, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Here you go. So a couple years ago, <clears throat> a couple of Christian thinkers tackled this idea of Jesus being a friend of sinners because they felt it was being used to justify some very bad behavior on the part of Christians. Right? They felt that Christians were using Jesus' willingness to party with sinners as an excuse to party like sinners. So they start to clarify that while Jesus did hang out with sinners, he only did so under very careful guidelines. So, for example, Joe Carter, he said this, Since Jesus parted with sinners, we should do so too, but only when they are not engaging in sin. We do so for the purpose of calling them to repentance and when our presence does not condone sin or the mocking of God. Now, similarly, Kevin DeYoung said this. He said, Jesus was a friend of sinners and that he was very pleased to welcome with sinners who were open to the gospel sorry for their sins and on their way to putting their faith in him. All right, and so these fellows, they're making some pretty good points, aren't they? I think they're making some fair points because Jesus, you know, he wasn't just some bohemian hippie who provided shrooms for the rave he was throwing because he always wanted to make sure that everybody had a great time. No, Jesus Christ came to the earth to call sinners to repentance. Right, Scripture is very clear about that. And so while they're right to point out that Jesus came to the earth to call sinners to repentance and not just party with them, that's right, they are wrong. 
about basically everything else. Because nowhere does Scripture suggest that Jesus only hung out with sinners while they weren't sinning. I mean, y'all, what in the world does that even mean? I mean, if Jesus Christ couldn't be around sinners while they were sinning, then he better just keep his perfect little self up in heaven because the earth is filled with sinners. And do you know what sinners do? They sin all the time. So if Jesus can't be around sin, he better just keep it up there, man, where it's nice. And then this notion that Jesus would only hang out with sinners if they were sorry for their sins and in the process of repenting is even more absurd. And I don't think it's too much to say that it is basically the exact opposite of the gospel, right? I mean, y'all... To say that Jesus would only welcome sinners if they had already repented is saying that God will embrace you if you have already embraced God. And that is not the gospel. That is the anti-gospel. Because the gospel doesn't say that God will embrace you if you're willing to embrace God. No, rather the gospel proclaims that you can embrace God because and only because God has always already unconditionally accepted you in Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel says. All that to say, Jesus did not wait for sinners to repent before embracing them. Rather, Jesus' unconditional embrace is what causes sinners to repent. And this is the gospel. And not too long ago, um, a couple members at the Vista told me this story. That's just one of my favorite stories in the whole world. I've told it before, but it's too good to just tell once, so I'm going to tell it again. They're at this party, okay? They're hanging out. People are mingling, you know, talking back and forth. You can kind of overhear things. And they hear this one person say, well, I promise you, a lot of those people at the Vista must have never been to a church before. And this other person responds and says, well, that sure doesn't surprise me very much because I've even heard that more than a few of them have done some time. So, uh... I want to clear the air here and make sure we're all crystal clear on this point. Yeah, we got a whole lot of people here at the Vista who have never been to a church before. And yeah, we got plenty of people here at the Vista who have done some time. And we're always looking for more. So if you know of anybody, make sure that you invite them because nothing would make Jesus happier then filling this place up to the brim with sinners. In fact, I hate to break it to you, but this place is already filled to the brim with sinners this morning. I was playing golf not too long ago. This is probably three years ago. We've played about seven holes, and I get asked the fatal question by this guy I'm playing with. Hey, what do you do for a living? So I tell him I'm a pastor. It's a big buzzkill. He pulls the whole beer behind the back trick, which I've seen many a times. And so he says to me, oh, okay. Well, man, you know, I'm a Christian. And I believe in the big guy. But I just, I just can't do the organized church thing. I said, oh, it's, it's fine. I've been there before. I mean, if you don't mind me asking, though, why, why can't you do the church thing? And he says, because all the hypocrites. I mean, don't you ever feel like your church is just full of hypocrites? And I said, no, man, my church is not full of hypocrites. We got plenty of room for you, too. We'll put you right there on the front with everybody else because when it comes down to it y'all we are all hypocrites we are all people who fail to live up to our beliefs and so the problem is not being a hypocrite but being unable to admit and accept and confess that you are a hypocrite so on the count of three you can just say it with me I'm a hypocrite one two three I'm a hypocrite now you're not anymore it's that simple all you got to do is own it and that brings us back to our story so the Pharisees they're grumbling right they're mad talking amongst themselves because Jesus is welcoming some people who they think should not be welcomed so in response to this, Jesus tells them three stories, three parables. Parable of lost sheep, lost coin, and the lost or prodigal son. 
Now, I've preached on the prodigal son a few times. So we're just going to focus on these first two stories today. The lost sheep and the lost coin. And they're very similar. Man has 100 sheep. He loses one. So he leaves his 99 found sheep. Go finds his one lost sheep. And what does he do when he finds that sheep? Oh, y'all, he throws an enormous house party. And he invites the whole neighborhood to come celebrate. Second story. woman loses a silver coin. It's about a day's wage. She turns the house upside down looking for it. Does that sound like anybody else's mom? My mom would literally rip our house down to the studs if I lost a sock. You know, that's how you tell the story is realistic. She searches. She finds the coin. And when she does, what does she do? She throws a house party and she invites the whole neighborhood to come celebrate too. And y'all, I love these stories because they remind us that God is unreasonably joyful. God is unreasonably joyful because y'all, Who throws a party and invites the whole neighborhood when they find a coin? Have any of you ever done that before? You've thrown a $1,000 party for finding a $5 bill? Nobody does that. You have never been to a party like that, but God does that. That's what the story, God does that. Because contrary to what you may have heard, God is not some grumpy, miserly old man up in the heavens who gets angry and has a conniption anytime anybody has a good time. No, God looks for reasons to celebrate. And Christians, if you're a Christian in the room this morning, you are morally obligated to go hard in the paint, man, and celebrate like it's 1999. Anytime any sinner repents, you are obligated to throw a party when a sinner repents. That's from on high. right? And that brings us back, though, to the real conflict in today's text. Because it's easy. You can even feel in the room right now. It's easy to be so hard on the Pharisees, isn't it? And pat yourself on the back because you're not one. But I'm not sure it's quite that simple. I don't think it's quite that simple. Because while Jesus and the Pharisees disagreed on many things, they agreed that sinners should repent. Do you notice that? To that end, in both these stories that Jesus told, we're told that a party breaks out in heaven when what? When a sinner repents. And so here's where I think the real conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees actually lies. The Pharisees failed to understand that their standard of repentance is not God's standard of repentance. They agree sinners should repent. The Pharisees failed to understand their standard is not necessarily God's standard. Let's put some flesh on this. So the Pharisees, they clearly think that they can neatly divide the world into people who have repented and people who haven't repented. It's very clear to them. You've got all the repentant people over here, namely us, and you've got all the unrepentant people over there, but what they have failed to understand is that what they have called repentance is actually just repentance according to them. Because when the Pharisees demand repentance, what they're actually demanding is repentance according to their standard interpretation of the Mosaic law. And their mistake is in arrogantly assuming that their standard has got to be God's standard. It couldn't be any possible uh, other way. And so when all the sinners come to Jesus, right, and he welcomes them, and he even goes so far as to imply that their, their, their willingness to be welcomed by Jesus is them repenting, right, because that's what Jesus is implying. This infuriates the Pharisees. And they go, but, 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 but that doesn't count. 
Ah, that's not repentance according to my standards of repentance. They're not following the dietary and purification codes and laws. They're not practicing kosher. They have not repented according to our standards of repentance. And Jesus says, well, you're dang right they haven't repented according to your standards of repentance because your standards aren't God's standards. In fact, your standards kind of suck because they neglect really important things like humility, mercy, faithfulness, and justice. And again... We should not be too judgmental of the Pharisees here, y'all, because we do this all the time, don't we? And we've all got these, these standards of behavior and repentance. And we assume that our standards must be God's standards. And all of our standards are a little bit different. Have you ever noticed that? Like some of us. Some of us would never say a bad word, ever, ever. Gosh, that's as bad as it gets for some of us. And we are appalled when other people do. We go all, Ephesians 4, 29, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth except that which is good for edification. We would be appalled when people use bad language. But we are stingy as hell with our money. That's fine. And then some of us, we are very judgmental towards certain people. People who are divorced, people who are gay, right? We're, we're very judgmental about that. Meanwhile, we've been addicted to porn for 15 years. That's fun. And on and on and on it goes. We could do this all morning long, right? We demand repentance in some things, typically things that we don't struggle with, while we ignore repentance in other things, typically things that we do struggle with, and we assume that our standards must be God's standards. And y'all, I struggle with this for so long. I still struggle with this tremendously because, if I can explain this the right way, as a pastor, I felt this like enormous pressure to be like the best person in the church, like the morally best person in the church. I'm supposed to be the best person, best husband, best father, best evangelist, like you name it. I'm supposed to be the best, the most generous person. I'm supposed to do all that. But I kept bumping up against this really, really big problem, namely... Um, I knew that I wasn't. I mean, y'all, do you know some of the people who go to our church? I don't want to embarrass anybody. But I'm gonna, Aaron, I'm going to embarrass you. Aaron Flieger, he's married to Sydney, our college pastor. Aaron is like the best person in the world. He rolls out of bed on his worst day, and he's a better person than Austin Fisher would be after a thousand years of sanctification. I cannot compete with this man. I can't do it. So finally I got to the point where God said to me, Austin, Austin, you have got to give up trying to size up whether or not you are better than others. You got to give it up. Because you know what? You are better than some people at some things. Not many things. It's a very short list for me. But some things. And then you are a lot worse than a lot of people at a lot of things. It is a very long list of things where people are better at me than that. And so instead of sitting around constantly sizing others up, according to your standards of behavior and repentance, be somebody who celebrates the goodness and repentance of others, whatever it looks like, wherever you find it, instead of grumbling about sin, be somebody who celebrates repentance. Because, and we'll end with this, because if you are a Christian man, you are morally obligated to celebrate, to go hard in the paint and celebrate any time that any sinner repents in any way. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together.
Gracious God, thank you for the gift of another day that we did not deserve. We're all here this morning, whether or not we know it, because you have always already unconditionally embraced us in Jesus Christ. We're not here because we were willing to embrace you. We're here because you embraced us. And your love of us has created our obedience, our faith. Anything that we do, it is because you first loved us. And so grounded in that fact that we call the gospel, we pray that you would help us to become people who love to be around sinners because we know that we are sinners and we know how much you love sinners, that all the sinners would draw near to us because we're a place, a space where they are called to repentance absolutely, but only in this deeper embrace of joy, faithfulness, and God's great goodness. And so I pray for all the sinners in our midst today that they would understand that they have always already been embraced in Jesus Christ. I pray for any of them who haven't understood what it means to accept that they would accept that because you are throwing a party for sinners and everybody's been invited. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.